We have an interesting thing that takes place around the Kohler household from time to time. We gather to watch a show together, maybe on the TV or whatever, in the living room. It seems like almost every time uh, someone will sit down and take a seat and uh, another child comes along and wants to sit in that same seat. I know this probably never happens at your place, but they actually begin to argue about the seat. And they'll say things like, no, it's mine. No, I was here first. It's mine. No, I said that was my seat, and so you got to get up because that's my seat. you got to go find another seat. And I can't help but sit there with a little bit of amusement listening to that because I realize that it's not their seat. It's my seat. I mean, I own the chair, I own the house, and uh, they are welcomed guests, uh, certainly while they're there, but they don't own any of it. I'm just letting them use it so they can enjoy the movie, right? Now, if you've ever had that kind of dynamic and, and reflected on it just a little bit, you may have reflected on it long enough to realize the lesson that's there of how we do the very same thing sometimes with God's own good gifts to us, right? We hold on to and, and cling to all these little things, and when they begin to be pulled out of our hands for whatever reason, under God's uh, uh, sovereign design or whatever, whenever we have some call on our life to share it with someone in need, whenever we have some cause for the sake of the gospel to give it to, or, or just some circumstances where the Lord is just uh, taking and ripping things out of our life, we hold on to it and we begin to proclaim, wait, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine, when really it's not. The Lord has provided us with so many riches in this life that He has entrusted to us for our own enjoyment, certainly, but for ultimately the purposes of His glory and kingdom. This is what we call stewardship. And it's our sort of final uh, chapter in a series that we've been looking at on what matters in the church And today we want to talk about stewardship matters. We've discussed a number of things, gospel matters and leadership matters and church matters and missions matters and prayer and all those other kinds of things. But today we come to the issue of stewardship. And it may not strike you as one of the important matters to be grouped together with all of these other things, but if you consider for just a moment what exactly we're talking about, you will, I believe, conclude that it is inescapably important. We might even say it's self-evidently important. Well, I read a study that said that we as human beings spend perhaps 50% of our time thinking about these kinds of things, thinking about matters of money and finance and savings and spending and retirement. We think about our bills and our bank accounts and our debt and better living and how we can acquire whatever we're trying to acquire and how we can protect ourselves against future catastrophe and how we can provide for our children and our spouse and and all of those things. We think about how we can save an extra nickel and find the best deal and and, uh, go, uh, you know, discover a sale somewhere on some item that we need or want. So it ought to be self-evident that these are important matters when it comes to just us as human beings, but certainly us as Christians. And when you add to that the reality that these were the kinds of issues that also dominated the teaching of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He, he left us with uh, right around 39 parables, and one-third of them deal directly with issues of finances and stewardship. And it's not surprising that they would, since it is such a dominant thing in our own lives. Jesus was intensely interested that we would comprehend and understand this issue as it relates to our spiritual life. You have to confess that stewardship matters. It matters because judgment matters. And in the judgment you will be assessed in great ways depending on your stewardship. 
how you have dealt with the things which have been entrusted to you. So we need to think about this. We need to think about it carefully. But I'll confess as I approach this, anytime I approach this, not just this week or any time in the past, anytime I am called upon to address the issue of finances in the life of the church or the life of the Christian, I always do it with a certain amount of fear and trepidation. I do it because I understand the sensitivity that people have developed in this arena of life for a whole host of reasons. There are people that believe that these kind of topics should never be discussed. They are just offended by it. They have come to associate uh, the church with greed and corruption when it comes to finances. They have imagined that the church is really all about money or they might proclaim that, you know, every time they go to the church, they seem to be talking about money. And we understand that that's been the experience of some people. We also understand that a part of their concerns are well-founded. That there are people who have gone out, and the Scripture warns us of them in 2 Timothy 3. They're lovers of money and lovers of self. Or as 1 Timothy 6 says, there are people who are of depraved mind and deprived of the truth and suppose that godliness is a means of gain. There are those who have have uh, become sort of hucksters and con men when it comes to the church and the gospel, and they have... They have propounded their sin upon people in their times of desperation and need, praying many times on the weakest and the the sickest, on the poorest, and telling them that, that, that by some kind of contrived formula or scheme, that in place of their sickness, they can have health, and in place of their poverty, they can have wealth, and they, they, they peddle a whole message that is really oriented towards the fleshly desires that we have for comfort and prosperity, doing all under the banner of Christ. Those kinds of things disturb me and disgust me as much as anyone else. And we would never want uh, this ministry or this pulpit or this church to ever be associated with anything like that. So there's always a sense of caution when you approach this kind of subject and have to talk about these kinds of things. And yet we can't let the corruption cause us to draw back from emphasizing the very things that the Lord himself emphasized and teaching the very principles that he taught, dealing with this important matter in our lives. Even if there's a hesitancy, if there's some sort of fear, we have to recognize that these are issues to be dealt with. I mean, I'll confess, throughout my ministry, I probably receive more criticism for talking about money than anything else I've ever preached on. It's just there. People are anxious, sensitive offended by this subject. Or perhaps it's because it ultimately touches a nerve in our heart. It ultimately exposes things in our heart that we don't want to see, that we don't want to think about. But these are important matters. It can't be neglected because stewardship matters, and it matters because judgment matters. Now, with all that in mind, I want to direct your attention this morning to one of the passages in Scripture where the Lord teaches on the issue of stewardship in, in a unique and profound way, in a condensed way, probably as much as anywhere else you'll find on the pages of Scripture, and it's Luke chapter 16. Luke 16 is this unique combination of teaching by our Lord in both the parable and principles related to the issues of stewardship. And in some ways, it's shocking really what he says. He teaches by way of shocking example in this parable. In in similar ways, the Lord taught like this concerning other matters. For example, in Luke 18, he tells the story of an unjust and unrighteous judge who didn't really care for other people and had no regard for the plight of those who were in need. And yet... He gave in eventually to the pleas of a poor widow who was crying out for mercy. And then he compares, shockingly, this unjust and unrighteous judge to God himself. 
And so it's not uncommon for Jesus to do this kind of thing, to take sort of a, a strange and um, maybe unexpected example, perhaps even of an unrighteous person, and to teach a spiritual principle from it. Really, what, the, what he's doing is what the rabbis of his day often did, was teaching from the lesser to the greater. If it is this way with this particular example, how much more will it be with our situation in, with God? Well, that's what we find in Luke 16. Jesus is teaching on the issue of stewardship, and he's teaching from the lesser to the greater by way of this story, this parable of a dishonest money manager. And he, he teaches this about this steward from this parable, and then he gives a number of principles in verses 10 through 13 that kind of apply it and bring it all uh, to the surface for us, the, all the issues that are related to stewardship, at least as they pertain to this parable. And we want to look at them all here today and sort of gather them all up, tie them all up, and and uh, frame up in our minds those factors that are important for stewardship. Before we get into the details, though, let me just read to you the first 13, chapter, first 13 uh, verses of chapter 16 in Luke. And we read in verse 1, he, he also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. And he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. Master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by the means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in, what, in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, as I said, there's a parable here and three principles that really arise out of it. And we can begin by looking at all of it together and seeing here Four factors that impact our stewardship, whether it is through the parable or through the principles. Four factors that impact our stewardship. The first one is this, and that is the impact of our perception of the future. The impact of our perception of the future. That's really the point of this parable. You would miss the whole thing if you, if you just perhaps picked up on and were disturbed by the particulars of the story as it relates to the character flaws of this manager. If you're simply scandalized by what's going on in the whole thing and thinking how in the world can someone who has just suffered as a victim of embezzlement so quickly turn around and commend the one who embezzled him? How can even our Savior pick up that kind of, of example and use it in any positive way to teach us anything about stewardship? But the point of this is that in spite of all the character flaws, despite of all the dishonesty that's shown here, all of those things are really set in contrast to the one virtuous trait of this 
manager, this steward, which is his clever perception of what will be the reality in the future. He is operating based on what he currently has power over and fleeting as it is. He knows literally within days these these management responsibilities are going to be ripped away from him. And seizing on the opportunity, the few hours or days that he has left, seizing on the opportunity, he understands that the most prudent thing he can do is invest in the future reality of his life. You kind of get the story here as Jesus tells it to his disciples. This man who was uh, hired by a wealthy landowner, uh, owner, overseeing all of his estate, overseeing all of his workers, negotiating all of his contracts, keeping up with all of his buildings and equipment, his storehouse of holdings. He was apparently trusted implicitly, So much so that the owner didn't have even first-hand knowledge of what was going on. He had to hear by second-hand, third-hand reports that this guy was, was somehow mismanaging. Maybe not through dishonest means, maybe just through poor stewardship, but he was squandering the possessions that were, that were there. And he hears these things about him. It is reported back to the manager and he calls him in to give an account. And he's not really investigating. He believes the reports. He calls him in, asks him to turn over the books, and then tells him to prepare to vacate the premises, vacate his office, lose his, not only his job, his access to the resources, but no doubt even his home. He was probably housed in the, in the, the buildings, the premises of the owner. Now he's in a pickle. Now he doesn't know what to do. He ponders for a moment what his options are, understanding that he will soon have no job, no income, no home, nothing at all. Nothing from his current situation will transfer to his future situation. All the wealth and all the prestige all the luxury that he's currently enjoying, none of it will transfer to his future situation. He recognizes that he has the option to dig. He's not strong enough for that. He recognizes he could beg. He's too dignified, he thinks, for that. So he comes up with a plan in verse 4. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. These people, as we come to find out, are the debtors. He summons them in verse 5 and he, he basically goes into action asking them about their contracts. Uh, he mentions two, there might have been more, but at least these two who are indebted somehow to the master. Not in monetary terms, these were uh, debts of wheat and oil, and so they would have been paid out, not in monthly installments, but when the harvest season came, they might have been uh, leasers, lease, uh, lease, leasees of the land uh, uh, underneath and growing their crops, or whatever the arrangement was, when the harvest time came, they would have had to make some sort of payment. And so there's time to renegotiate, which is exactly what the manager does. How much do you owe my master, he says. And one of them says, 100 measures of oil. That would be basically 875 gallons of oil. A massive, massive tally. That would take, it's estimated, 150 trees, uh, olive trees, to produce that much oil in a single year. Or some have calculated it to be about three years' worth of salary for an average worker. So you can just calculate in your mind in modern terms what kind of money we're talking about here. These were large contracts. But he takes them and he says, look, take your bill, sit down quickly and write out 50. There's no time to waste. I mean, this is, there's a sense of urgency to this. He's going to lose, he's going to lose control of these assets any, any moment now. Massive write-off. 
And next, a, a man comes in who owed a hundred measures of weed, which is roughly a hundred acres of grain and has been calculated to be perhaps eight to ten years worth of salary for a typical worker. And he tells them to sit down and write his bill out for eighty. Now, when you do all of these things, in our modern society, we might want to have all that stuff, you know, sort of uh, put into some sort of contractual arrangement. Hey, if I do this for you, you got to give me some sort of guarantees. But that was unnecessary in the ancient world because there was embedded into the society this, this notion of reciprocation, that, that things like this were just naturally reciprocated. And so he understood according to the cultural sensitivities of his time, that when he did this, there would be some level of, of expectation or some level of understanding of a return that would be given to him down the road. These two, these two uh, uh, debtors were probably not sufficient to, to provide for him for the rest of his life. And so we understand that he probably went through the entire the entire. A tally of debtors that were there for the owner and gave all of them similar kind of deals. And you, you read through the story and at this point you're just tempted to be disgusted with this kind of selfish, self-absorbed behavior. I mean, this is self-protectionism in its worst. The guy is clearly concerned about no one else in the world at this point but himself. And there isn't a lot to really, we would think, to be redeeming about this character. But not according to his master. Because Jesus tells us in verse 8 that his master hears about this. And he actually praises the guy. Commends him. He probably is thinking, well, I wish I would have seen some of that ingenuity when you were working for me. He recognizes that for whatever the guy's flaws are, he has just done something that is incredibly clever. He's calculated based on what he currently controls. He's calculated a way to transfer value into his future. He's recognized that he can't he can't pocket all this stuff. He can't stuff his shirt and line his pockets with enough stuff that would carry him through the rest of his life. And so he's cleverly figured out a way to transfer value into a future that is yet unseen and yet unexperienced. So he's praised, not for his irresponsibility, but for his shrewdness, for his innovation, for his forward thinking. And then the second shock of this whole thing is that Jesus actually commends him. He says, for the sons of this world, the sons of this age, the sons of this time, uh, the, the word there for, for world is ionos, so the, basically the word for, for a, a time, a, a season. The sons of this world or this time are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The word generation, Ginea, is another word that could be talking about, talking about a, a period or an age or a time. They're more shrewd with the time that they have here on this world, the time that they have in this life, than so many of the sons of light. That's you and I. We're the sons of light. We're the daughters of light. We're the ones who no longer walk in darkness, but our eyes have been opened by the power of Christ and the truth of the gospel so that we no longer have to live under the delusion and the deception of the world that's around us. And one of the deluding influences, one of the deceptive lies, is that reality is only what you can see and hear and touch or feel. We shouldn't be those as sons and daughters of light who are living under that kind of darkness. We ought to be those who have more insight. And yet Jesus says the sons of this age show more sense, more wisdom in the way that they deal with their material possessions than we do. And they have more sense of preparation for the future that they see and that they understand. They can be more aggressive in their use of money 
to have the longest, best impact than we could. And you see it all the time. I mean, people work 35, 40 years slaving away, sacrificing, squirreling away whatever kind of nickels and dimes or, or uh, pensions or whatever it is that they can, trying to store up this massive amount of money so that whenever they get to retirement age, which is what, 68 now, 69 years old, that they would have something by which they can live and perhaps enjoy life. Which at that point, their life expectancy is what? Five, six years? According to statistical averages? Half of it will be spent going to the doctor twice a week, right? Can't even travel. I mean, he's saying, look, that's, that's the reality that's around us. When it comes to a stewardship idea, the people who are around you every day calculating, thinking, and investing in the ways that they're doing are doing it with sometimes a more shrewd perspective than you ever would. If you were to tell them, hey, I want to make a deal with you. I'm going to give you an opportunity to invest in a long life of of reward. Let's just call it a hundred years. I'm going to give you a hundred years of reward if you will, instead of investing in this 401k that's going to get you seven or eight years or whatever at the end of your life, instead of investing in that, you invest in this, I'll give you a hundred years. I guarantee you every one of them would take that. And yet we who understand the future and we understand eternity and we understand what lies beyond retirement and beyond the grave cannot lift our eyes into the future to see what really is there. I mean, if I were to tell you, look, I've got a deal for you. I'm going to, you give me, you know, all of your savings. You give me all of your extra resources right now. And at the end of your life, I'm going to give you one day, one day where you control all things, everything in the world. I mean, you're just going to have everything at your fingertips for one day. But the next day after that, you control none of it. You'd have none of it. You would probably say, there's no way. I mean, I don't, I don't want that. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for something that has a little more traction to it, a little more, little more uh, runway to it. I don't want to take something where I can control everything for a day, and then after that, I lose control of all of it. Folks, that's exactly the position that we're in. We are, we are working and striving and pouring our life into what Jesus says are accounts where sti- sti- uh, thieves break in and steal, moth comes in and eats, rust decays, where if you want to take it in economic terms, health may very well take you out, and if it doesn't take you out, inflation may take you out, illness may take you out, catastrophe may take you out. And you're investing in all those things where you have no guarantee. And yet, before us is the reality of eternity. And so Jesus makes the application for us. Verse 9. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by the means of the wealth of unrighteousness. That when it fails, and it will, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Now you know he's transitioned totally away from the parable. This guy who was just looking a very limited way at the rest of his life, and he's moved out of this life, and he's moved into eternity. He says, this is the application. Make for yourself friends, as many friends as you can, with whatever wealth that you have. By the way, when he says wealth of unrighteousness, He's not suggesting that wealth is inherently evil or that somehow accumulating it uh, would be, uh, you know, in itself evil. But what he's really communicating is that accumulating it has no impact on your spiritual life. It cannot transfer. It will not go. 
But you have opportunity to project value, if you will, to project investment, to project benefit into an eternity by the way that you use it. You can translate this wealth. You can make friends with this wealth. You can invest in ministries that reach people. You can invest in ministries that proclaim the truth. You can invest in ministries where people are discipled. You can invest in ministries where people are rescued and, uh, and brought from a place of corruption to a place of worship before God. You can invest in ministries where, where fruit is going to be born to the glory of God. You can make an investment, Jesus says, in people. And those people transfer to the next age. They transfer. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there. He takes that basic theme of stewardship and he expands on it then with three important principles and really take us to the the other impacts on our stewardship. And the second factor that impacts our stewardship is the impact of our spiritual character. This isn't just an issue of calculation. Jesus says it really is an issue of your character. Verse 10, he who is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in very little or in a very little thing is unrighteous in much. And you could paraphrase this by simply saying circumstances do not determine faithfulness. Circumstances, your circumstances are not the primary determiner of your faithfulness. You may have what Jesus says here is very little. But that's not what's determining how faithful you are with it. What's determining it is your spiritual character. People say all the time, if I had more, I'd give more. And Jesus' simple answer is, no, you wouldn't. Because you're going to demonstrate with what you currently have You're going to demonstrate the kind of spiritual character. You're going to demonstrate the kind of impact already that the gospel's had on your heart. You're going to demonstrate the kind of generosity and the kind of belief and faith that you have in the future by how you manage whatever little bit that you have right now. In fact, this is very strong language. He doesn't just say he who's faithful with little, but he who's faithful with a very little thing, a minuscule little thing. He who's faithful with that, he says, will be faithful with much. If you truly are spiritually minded, if your treasure really is set in heaven, if you really are concerned about what is eternal, if you're concerned about your money being used to advance the gospel, if you understand it as being not yours but entrusted to you, If that's the perspective that you have, it doesn't really matter how much is in your possession. You will deal with it with a heavenly view, with a spiritual integrity. You will invest it if you're spiritually minded. So the question then is not how much you have right now. The question that you really need to ask is who you are right now. Are you among the faithful? Or are you not? Some of you who cannot control your indulgences, some of you who cannot control your materialism, some of you who cannot control your impulses, plunge yourself into whether it is crushing debt or just obligations or just bring yourself to the very end of your means and there's nothing left over after you've expended everything on yourself. Jesus is saying, look, if you're unfaithful with that, you'll be unfaithful if more is given to you. I'll never forget the sad reality of having a young 30-something-year-old sitting in my office telling me a number of years ago, you know, I never thought I would get to the place where I needed $250,000 every year just to live. And I thought, you don't. You don't. I mean, I can tell you that you don't. 
You probably know that you don't if you just reflect on where you came from. But what happened is you allowed your lifestyle, you allowed your impulses, you allowed your appetites to grow to such a point. You put yourself under so much obligation that you have now found yourself under this crushing burden to have to go out and earn more and more and more. You've chosen to do that. And it isn't because of the reflection of your faithfulness. Third factor that impacts your stewardship. The impact of your stewardship is impacted by eternal rewards, or we might say your perspective on eternal rewards. The impact of our perspective on eternal rewards. And that's very simply what Jesus is teaching us in verse 11 and 12. That what you do with your money now, not only is it a reflection of where your spiritual maturity is, it's, a ref- it's, it's also, I should say, has implications on your eternal reward. And Jesus says, if you then have been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? If you understand this principle, then you will understand that whatever you're doing now with whatever you have is having a direct impact on true riches, on eternal riches. And if you, by implication, are not using what you have now to invest in that which is really meaningful, if you're not using this to invest, as Jesus says, in those kinds of people and friends who will receive you into eternal homes, if you can't see into the future and perceive what is going to be the realities beyond the grave and make the kind of wise choices with whatever you have passing through your fingers right now, whatever you bring home from your paycheck or receive in gifts or whatever it might be. Who will entrust true riches to you? And by the way, this is not just talking about eternity. Now, this isn't only a principle that applies after you die. It applies in your life right now. In fact, look with me over at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I don't know a better place to illustrate this. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, when Paul had just spent a, a chapter and a half kind of commending the Macedonians for their giving, and he, he begins to plead with the Corinthians. The Corinthians had made a commitment. They had made sort of a promise Uh, they hadn't necessarily signed a card, but they had made a a commitment about something they would do to fulfill an offering in the future. And now he's writing to them this letter, encouraging them to follow through with their commitment. And along the way, he wants them to understand important spiritual principles when it comes to stewardship. And he says in verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What he's talking about here is he's talking about the issue of stewardship. And he's saying that God, who has this capability of causing all kinds of gifts, the word grace could be translated gifts, to, to, to make all kinds of gifts abound to you. He's able to provide all sufficiency so that you have everything you need to do every good work. I don't know about you, but I'm sometimes torn up by all the opportunities that I cannot participate in. I mean, I get more more solicitations from good ministries, from good people than I've probably ever gotten in my life, and we do the best we can to support as many as we can, and yet I'm always burdened whenever we're we're doing that that we can't do more. There's so many good things, so many good missionaries, so many good ministries that I would love to participate in, and yet I understand that I'm in a test. I'm in a test of how I'm dealing with the the issues that have been entrusted to me now, and God is able to grow that capacity so that all those things that I long to be involved with now, I can be involved with. Because God's not short on resources, and He's the one who gives it to me. Paul goes on, As it is written, 
He's distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. He has the same perspective that, Paul, that uh, Jesus has in Luke 13. This producing of thanksgiving, this producing of worshipers, this producing of eternal friends. You'll have greater and greater capacity. You're going to reach your hand into the bag of seed and you're going to feel around and you're going to feel like you're kind of reaching the bottom, but you're, you're not going to hoard it. You're not going to hold it back for a better time. You're going to go ahead and reach down into that seed and you're going to cast that seed out further and you're going to believe that the next time you go to put your hand back down into that bag, he supplied the seed that you need. That's what he's saying. You keep casting, he keeps supplying. You see, this is really the difference. This is the missing element of the prosperity gospel, which is out there telling people, look, you invest this faith principle or you invest this seed money and what's going to happen to you is you're going to give this seed money and a hundredfold is going to come back to you. But the appeal is not so that you can turn around in, in further self-denial and cast that hundredfold out further or whatever it might be. The appeal is always so that you can experience the prosperity that the preacher is talking about, that you can have a lifestyle like his with his private jet and designer clothing and, and fashion automobile or whatever it might be. But that's not what Paul's talking about. What he's saying is, if there is an increase, it's an increase for the sake of sowing. And sure enough, if you stop sowing, that provision can dry up just as well. This is really what Jesus is talking about. Look, if you are not faithful with what little bit has been given to you now, who will entrust true riches to you? Who will give you more so that you can sow more? You think God's going to entrust eternal things to you if you frittered away the temporal stewardship that you have now? Buying for yourself creature comforts and temporary possessions and luxuries and distractions and all those things. Do you think he's really going to make an investment in you with those true riches? The, the riches that come, for example, in the kingdom where we're told we're going to reign with Christ for a thousand years. We're going to reign with him, Romans of Revelation 5 says, on the earth. Meaning that we're going to, we're going to have stewardship, we're going to have oversight over I would imagine vast resources if you've been faithful with what you have now. You might imagine that, that whatever capacity you have given in this life, it's just going to transfer over. You've been given relatively more than everyone else here. It's just going to transfer over. But Jesus is saying that's not true. You've been given a test. You might very well fail the test. You might be given a little and be faithful with that little. You can be like Christ himself who had no place to lay his head. But he was faithful with it. You might be like Paul who says we are to this very day without food and without bread. And we are poor like the dregs of the world. You can be like the apostles who were given very little. But they were faithful with it. They'll be entrusted with much. What you have, as we sang earlier, is not yours. And so we need to learn to think that way. And to recognize that it is something that's having a direct impact on what is waiting for us down the road. Fourth factor that impacts our stewardship. And that is the impact of our submission towards God. Jesus says in verse 13, No servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You're a slave. There are no other options. You are a slave. It's not a question of if, it's a question of who. Either to wealth or to God. Wealth is the thing which rules you and by which you live, or God is the one who rules you and by whom you live. 
You either let your life pursuit of wealth call all the shots or you let God call all the shots. And this is so obvious, it just is common sense. You cannot be a servant of two masters. Slavery is an all-encompassing thing. It's not a part-time job. It's not a thing where you clock in and clock out. We're talking about a purchased slave. You are owned either by your wealth. You think that you own it, but you are owned by it. It dictates when you get up and what you do during the day and all those other things, or you are owned by God. And if someone is a slave and they understand that they're owned properly by their owner, their master, or whatever it is, if someone clearly understands this ownership relationship, this ownership dynamic, and then they come in, another person comes in and begins to make demands of you as if you are their slave... You can imagine the kind of resentment it's going to build up. Hey, I understand. Wait, wait. I belong to this guy. You can't come in here and start bossing me around like uh, somehow you're my master because I don't have any obligation to you. I'm owned by this guy. Jesus says, look, if you are a slave, you cannot be a slave of two masters because you will resent one of them. You will understand your ownership capacity in one direction. And yet this is what happens. People convince themselves or try to convince themselves all the time that they can serve God and serve money. That they can serve God and serve wealth. All the while, never really perceiving the kind of resentment and bitterness that builds up in their heart when God begins to make demands. Whenever they begin to hear that, no, He's the true owner of everything that you have. You find yourself in these conflicts of interest between what you see God doing and the call in your life to participate in it and the plans that you've made for whatever you want to do with your possessions. But if you believe your real master is God, if you believe that He's the real provider, then you're going to resent the lure of the world and its call to its own luxuries as that which would impede your service to Him. You will resent the one who's trying to tell you to follow them rather than your true master. On the other hand, if you really serve wealth and God makes a call on your life, you will resent that call. You'll resent anyone coming along and reminding you that what you have is a stewardship. You'll resent sermons like this. You will begin to believe when people are talking to you about issues of spirituality and money, they're really just somehow followed and pursuing and and driven by the same kind of greed that's overtaken your heart and your life. You'll resent it. In fact, some of you may be there right now. You might be sitting there, you know, I used to like this church. I used to like you. you want to serve money as your master you're never going to be able to serve Christ conflicting demands will make you angry until it eventually drives you away lovers of money don't like this in fact look at verse 14 the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard these things and ridiculed him they didn't have cars but they got in whatever whatever mode they traveled in, going home from that sermon that day and just began to ridicule Jesus' teaching. Lovers of money don't like this. But if you're serving God, what you're saying to yourself right now is, wow, I, I need to take a fresh look at what I'm doing. I need to take a fresh look at the opportunities that are around us. I need to take serious stock of what the Lord's given to me and the kind of stewardship that I'm making of it and the kind of future that might be propounded from it and the kind of transfer into the next life by investing in the kind of ministries that are around me 
to see people won to Christ, to see people edified, to see fruit born to God, to see people discipled. I need to take stock and consider what's going on around me. Jesus says, make your choice. Make your choice, but you can't have both. You're a steward. God has given to you something to cast, to sow. And He'll give you more. As the old saying says, you can't outgive God. You can't do it. He will supply more seed if you're faithful with what you have to demonstrate your spiritual character, to demonstrate gospel concern for others, to demonstrate a desire for eternal rewards, to honor God with all that you have been given, to be His conduit for the work that He's doing, to be faithful to that end. We've got opportunities. There are opportunities, obviously, we have a, a building coming up. I mean, there's going to be ministry that takes place through that, this discipleship of children and youth and counsel, tra- counseling that takes place and training and, and uh, teaching pastors and sending out missionaries and worship and teaching and all the stuff that will take place through that. There's opportunities outside of this church with missionaries who are doing work around the world. There's opportunities with short-term teams. There's all kinds of opportunities. There's no shortage of that. And God is not short on resources to accomplish any of it. But really, He's really concerned about is us and how we are dealing with what's been given to us. Stewardship matters. It matters because judgment matters, because eternity matters, because your life, as you wake up tomorrow and go out the rest of the day, is so oriented around these kinds of things, you need to think about them in light of your God. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for this reminder and I just confess in my own heart that I can be like a little child so lacking in faith even though you've proven yourself again and again. I can shrink back from being truly generous as I ought. But Lord, I don't want to do that. I want to prove your faithfulness. I want to see you magnified. Use the resources that you've given to me to build friendships. To see lives changed. To have the gospel proclaimed. I pray that you would help me to do that. To die to the temporal and elemental trinkets of this life and to be truly shrewd, clever, insightful. That we might be like our Savior, like the apostles, like every faithful believer before us, using resources to the maximum potential for your glory and ultimately for the eternal reason, the eternal goal of our blessing. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.